what I'd like to talk about tonight is the nature of the Dharma. This past summer, in teaching a retreat at Lama Foundation in the mountains of New Mexico, which is a Sufi-oriented spiritual community, when we had finished our week or so of retreating, um, and just as the retreat closed, they came in with their instruments, and they taught us a few of the circle Sufi dances, the dances of universal peace. Um, I think they felt that we needed it after Buddhist practice. (laughs) And they were probably right. (laughs) And they picked a few that were particularly fitting for us after the Vipassana practice, one of which was quite striking. There were two circles, an inner circle and an outer circle that would move in opposite directions and you would face one another for a few moments as a partner and there was a certain beautiful melody and song that came with it and the basic chant or singing that went as you greeted each partner and did a certain series of steps and then then left them for the next partner was I love you when you come and you'd bow and do this certain set of movements and so forth and then I love you when you go and then the next person would come. I love it when it comes, and I love it when it goes. And that was, I guess, what they thought we needed after this practice. Although, in fact, I think that's what this practice is. A quote from Goethe. He said, As long as you do not practice it, this dying and becoming, you are only a dreary guest on this dark earth. As long as in some way, in the deepest place in our being, we do not practice this dying and becoming, this letting go and separating and rejoining in some new fashion, our whole life is a confused struggle. A friend who had a, a kind of tragedy happen not so long ago in her extended family, and one of the young man who was just out of college in a, a very beautiful young boy or man was killed while he was riding his motorcycle which is a bit of a dangerous activity anyway but there he was he just graduated college and he was this very beautiful gifted athlete and a creative person um, and he was just about to start doing whatever he would do as an adult and then it was gone, erased, ended. And they talked about it a lot in their family, about how we assume so much about how long we will be here, or how much time we have to do things, or what the right order of natural order of things should be. And yet the main practice that we need always is to live so well in each day, in each moment, in each hour, that that is complete for us. I want to talk about the Dharma. Dharma is a Sanskrit or Pali word. In Pali it's Dhamma. In Sanskrit it's Dharma. And it has a series of meanings. We call these Dharma talks on the schedule. And that means they're talks about the truth 
In some way, these are talks or times to use words to point our understanding to that which is true in the heart, in the mind, in the world around us. And even if they bring bad news at times, they're still refreshing for the most part if they're a good Dharma talk because the bottom line is that they speak about what is true for us. And when we chant in the evening chantings, um, Swakato, Bhagavata, Dhammo, uh, homage to the Dharma. Dhamma is Dharma. Dharma is teachings. Ehi pasiko o panaiko, bachatangwe titapu in yuhiti. There are a series of words that are part of that homage, which mean that the Dharma is universal, it's immediate, it's open-handed, it's to be experienced by each person for themselves directly. It's timeless. And these are the chants that have been done over and over for centuries, for thousands of years. That the truth of life is here to be discovered for any individual with eyes open to see. And that it's offered, the teachings are offered in a way to make that available. It's immediate, it's in this present moment. And it brings benefit to everyone. It's said there's a famous saying in the Indian Buddhist tradition that the Dharma protects those who follow it like a great umbrella in the rainy season. And it's somehow a nice and fitting phrase since we're in the rainy season here. So one meaning of Dharma is the teachings, the the expressions of practice and of the way of seeing life, birth and death that have been handed down. There's Buddhist Dharma or Theravada Dharma or Tibetan Dharma or Hindu Dharma, but it's the corpus of teachings and the expression of that which describes coming into a clear relation with reality. Dharma has a series of other meanings. It also means, in another way, the elements which make up our world. The elements of the physical world, of earth, air, fire, and water, or to put it more um, experientially, the element of hardness and softness, which is the earth element, the element of solidity. The element of fire, which is the element of temperature, of hot and cold. The element of air, which is the element of vibration, either movement or stillness. And the element of water, which is of cohesion or dispersal. And as we pay attention to our experience, we begin to see that all of our physical experience is made up of moments of these physical elements, these four, and then several derived elements of color and odor and taste and so forth. And that that's really all there is in the physical world is play of hardness and softness and textures and hot and cold and vibration and stillness, which we then give names to as people or buildings or trees. But not only are those considered dharmas, the individual dharmas of the physical reality, but all of the other parts of our experience, the feelings that we have, pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant, moments of the dharmas of feelings, 
the different mental factors which arise, the ones of greed or fear or anxiety or confusion or restlessness or aversion or hatred. There are certain dharmas, certain elements which arise in the mind. And they're opposites, ones of clarity or openness or calm or acceptance or love or wisdom are also elements. And in one way in our practice, we see all these elements and we encourage the arising of the skillful ones and let go of or don't get so entangled in the unskillful ones. But the most important thing is just to see that all of it is these elements. 52 mental factors, or 108 kinds of consciousness. When, they go, when you go to a funeral in a Buddhist country like Thailand, the chants that the monks do, there are a series of them, but the main chant they do is to go through the list of elements. As the body's being burned, they list the four basic physical elements and the four derived elements, and finally the 28 um, ultimately derived physical elements, and then they chant the 52 mental factors and the 108 kinds of consciousness, and after each one they say, impermanent. This one's impermanent, and then that one's impermanent, and then that one's impermanent, until by the end of hearing, you know, 300 things, you start to see, and you watch the body burn, you start to get the point. <laughs> that what we are is temporary, is made up a series of elements, and those elements are called dharma. It's an amazing process, kind of interdependent, arising process of out of nothing, life creating forms out of itself for a while in certain fashions, and then new forms. So that's another meaning for Dharma. One is the teachings, one is the elements which make up all of this. There's another meaning for Dharma, which is an interesting one. And that's more used in the common uh, Indian language these days and more associated with the Hindu tradition in its usage. But it's the meaning of Dharma as destiny. That one tries to discover or listen in one's life to what is one's Dharma. And in India it's generally pretty simple. If your father was a cobbler or a shoemaker, your Dharma is to become a shoemaker. If your father has a uh, is a farmer, has a field, then your dharma is to fulfill that destiny and, and become a good farmer. It's a little more complicated here in this country. It's not so spelled out because your parents can be one thing and then you go to college and they say, what would you like to major in, you know, or what work would you like to do? And so it's even more difficult in a way, a greater suffering for people in the West to discover or find their destiny. But it's part of what our spiritual life is about. Part of that is an acceptance of ourselves, whether we're an introvert or whether we're an extrovert, or whether our destiny is more through service or whether it's through silent work on ourselves. To discover what is the appropriate place for us on this earth. And it doesn't mean there's some special place where you'll always be happy. Forget it. You know, or the right work where everything will always be satisfying. Impossible. Or the right place to live where you'll always feel connected. Not possible. It doesn't mean it in that kind of idealistic sense. But it means, um, in a way, asking the question of 
what is the lesson for me in this life? What freedom is there that I need to discover? Or what difficulty need I learn about and overcome? And when you read the lives of the Jataka tales of the Buddha, 500 birth stories of feeding himself to the hungry tiger to learn true compassion or sitting through unbelievable difficulties without moving to learn patience or whatever his particular life is, you see that in some way in each of those lives he learned uh, a particular and profound kind of lesson. You might ask yourself at this retreat or in this particular life which isn't all that much longer than this retreat, um, what is the lesson? There's also a kind of spiritual destiny in the sense of discovering what connects you to the deeper spiritual truth. Because we all have this kind of longing in ourselves, I believe everyone does, to go beyond this limited sense of self. And uh, the stories of people and how they found their spiritual path or teacher or even got involved to begin with are wonderful. I've often wanted to make a book out of it, um, of 50 or 100 stories in a few pages each of how people found their teachers or found the way that got them started. For me, it was reading a book by T. Lobe Sang Rampa when I was 14 years old, who was a Tibetan. Actually, he wasn't. He was a plumber in London who fell out of a tree and got knocked unconscious. And when he came to, he claimed to have switched consciousness with a Tibetan Lama and started writing all these great tales of Tibet. <laughs> Some of which are kind of dubious, I think, at this point. But it was very exciting to me, Lamas flying and all these kinds of great stories. And that's what turned me on. <laughs> and so eventually, I had this very strong desire to become a monk. I don't know why, partly that story and other things. And when I, I majored in Buddhism and Chinese and Asian studies at Dartmouth, and, and even before I finished uh, college, I knew that I wanted to try that, so I applied to the Peace Corps and asked them to send me to a Buddhist country so I could see what it was like being a monk. Who knows why, but that was some destiny I had to follow. Then I had to come back, of course, and face family life and all the rest of that. Um, in the Bhagavad Gita, a central and wonderful book in the, uh, out of the Mahabharata, the, the Hindu teachings, a lot of the story revolves around accepting one's destiny, where Arjuna is a warrior and in this battle and, and asking Krishna, why is it that we have to fulfill our dharma, fulfill our destiny, and do I really have to? Joseph, I remember um, him a number of times telling the story of how he first got involved in practice. Uh, well, not how he first got involved in practice. He got involved in that in Thailand. But he was looking for a teacher after he finished his Peace Corps stint. He came back to this country and went to Colgate uh, College in upstate New York and got into, there was a little... Um, kind of hermitage where you could get a room to do a retreat for a while, but he had no real experience in meditation. And he said he sat down there and he tried counting his breath and meditating on his third eye and chanting Om and visualizing the Buddha and um, pacing back and forth and doing a hundred different things and he really didn't know what he was doing and finally it dawned on him that he really needed a teacher. So he went back in Thailand and visited places and didn't find the right teacher. He went to India and visited a number of great masters. 
none of them felt right. So finally, he decided to go back one more time to Thailand, to this monastery, to look for a teacher. And he was on his way to the travel agent to get his ticket. And he said it was as if a, a hand came down from the sky and stopped him in mid-pace in this block in Delhi. And he could not walk a step further. He just couldn't go any further, or like he hit that invisible wall that you see in some of those toothpaste advertisements. Or something. It just, he stopped. And being Joseph, instead of trying to say, now this is interesting, I wonder why this wall is here or whatever, he just accepted it, which is partly his nature. And so he said, well, <clears throat> that was plan A, I guess I can't go to Thailand, I must have to do something else. And so the next idea he had was to go to Bodh Gaya and take some LSD under the Bodhi tree <laughs> and see if maybe something good would come to him. That was his. I'm not recommending that to you, by the way. But. So since he couldn't go that way, he went the other way to the train station and got a ticket and took the train overnight to Bodh Gaya. And he got off there um, in Gaya and went into Bodh Gaya. And before he could even go over to the Bodhi tree, he ran into some Westerners who said there's a really interesting teacher here at this Burmese monastery. So he stopped in just to check it out and listen to a few minutes of teaching of this man, Manindra, and said, that's my teacher. And uh, that was it. He, and he stayed for seven years after that in that monastery, more or less, although he came and went in the hot season, practicing and studying. And so there's this meaning of dharma, which is really listening, following something intuitive, or finding or discovering your path or your way. And it's not that you find it and keep it, because Joseph has had a number of teachers since then, and I've practiced in a number of different ways, but of being open enough to listen, to follow that which will lead you to discovery, to truth. And sometimes it's the littlest things that touch us. It's a story from the Zen master Ryokan. Once his brother asked Ryokan to visit his house and speak to his delinquent son. He had a teenage son who was misbehaving. This was in the 17th century in Japan, but it's not any different. Ryokan came, but could not say a word. He was someone who really loved young people and children. All the stories about him are of his love for them. Ryokan came, but could not get himself to say a word of admonition to the boy. He stayed overnight and prepared to leave the next morning. As the wayward nephew was lacing up Ryokan's sandals, he felt the drop of warm water. Glancing up, he saw Ryokan looking down at him, his eyes full of tears. Ryokan then returned home and heard by letter that the nephew had changed very much for the better. Very, very simple moments sometimes. Kalu Rinpoche, very famous old Tibetan Lama, was staying at the house of some friends of mine in Cambridge who had a young child, a little boy, two years old, Owen. And they were at that time very much involved in both Buddhist and Hindu practice. And the house was filled with Tibetan tankas and pictures of Maharaji Neem Karoli Baba. And they had chanting in the evenings. And this was, it was very intense and quite beautiful if you were into it. And um, anyway, Kalu came and did some teachings and asked them if they would turn their house into a center for him, which he did wherever he stayed. And they did for a while. And then they said to him in one of the interviews, how can we teach our child to become spiritual? 
And he shook his head immediately on hearing the question. And he said, don't try to do that. He said, you don't know what his destiny is, whether his dharma or his destiny is to be um, an airplane pilot or to be a monk or a nun or to be a chef or to be a world traveler or to be a farmer and stay in one place. What your job is, is to do the, the work of your own heart and to provide an example of someone who lives with virtue, who lives with attention and care in their own life, who lives with honesty and, and, uh, and mindfulness. And that will be the ground out of which your child can then discover his own destiny. So Dharma, the word means the teachings as they've been handed down. It means the elements, the dharmas, the individual elements that make up everything and the change all the time. The molecules and atoms and the hot and cold and sweet and sour and pleasant and unpleasant and the good opinion and bad opinion. Those are all the play of the dharmas. The dharma as our destiny. And finally, to study the Dharma, since we're here to study the Dharma, we study the teachings, we look at the elements, we begin to hear our place in it, our individual destiny, our role. And finally, it's to study the laws of nature or the laws of the universe. And that's the last major meaning of the Dharma. Dharma means the law, the way, the Tao, the universal nature of things, the truth of things. I've been reading, I picked it up in the library there, this beautiful picture book, which is based on Pope John, Paul, John XXIII's um, last major essay that he wrote, or encyclical called Peace on Earth, with a lot of very beautiful pictures. And he begins, it's enough to turn me into a card-carrying Catholic, it's so wonderful. He was a wonderful teacher. He says, in the very beginning of it, Peace on Earth, which people of every era have most eagerly yearned for, can be firmly established only if the spiritual order is dutifully observed. The progress of learning and the inventions of technology clearly show that, both in living things and in the forces of nature, an astonishing order reigns. And they also bear witness to the greatness of human beings, who can understand that order and create suitable interest, in, instruments to harness the forces of nature and use them to our benefit. This is where he begins. That for us to find peace or love or whatever we wish on this earth, we must discover the universal laws which govern this realm of, of being. And so we sit and we study the Dharma. Now what are the universal laws that we can look at? The law of karma is an obvious one. That how we act, how we think and act and speak, begins to create who we become. And if we practice hatred after a while, it becomes an easy habit and we, be, we become hateful. And then what happens in the world around us? It starts to come back and we receive it. If we practice patience, after a while we become patient if we cultivate loving-kindness as a response. After a while, not only does that become our habit or our way, but the world begins to receive that, and it becomes that which we get back from the world, and it affects the earth around us. 
So the first is the law of karma. And there are all kinds of forces. There are lots of descriptions which I won't go into in this talk. The force of karma that brings one to birth in a particular life, reproductive karma, and the force that kind of keeps it going. And then the counter forces of counteractive karma and destructive karma that interfere with that in certain ways, all based on, on the laws of what has happened to us again and again in our lives. The Dalai Lama, in speaking at Harvard at one time, I remember, gave this very long discourse on Tibetan psychology and all the realms of shunyata and emptiness. And it was hard for a lot of people to follow. And at the end he said, don't worry about it. If you remember one thing in this, forget all about emptiness, forget all about all these esoteric things I've said, and just keep in mind the law of karma. Just that alone is enough that how you treat people and how you act is going to affect how they treat you back and how your own mind becomes and how your heart becomes. So that's one of the laws that you can begin to see operate moment to moment, day to day in your meditation practice. Now what are the other kinds of laws? Connected with that is the preciousness of life. That if you honor life, life becomes open and sweet and peaceful. And if you denigrate it, it doesn't. It's a very simple law. The law of impermanence. There's another one that we've talked about already this evening. How every single thing that arises changes. And the other chant that's done at funerals, beside the one I mentioned, is, is the Anicca chant that we do um, in the evening sometimes. Anicca Vata Sankara. All created things are impermanent. They're all bound to change. To see that, to discover that law, and bring ourselves into harmony with it, brings true happiness and peace. We're infants, we're babies, we're children, we're adolescents, we're young adults, we're adults, we, we're old people, we die. Trees are born and they go through certain changes and they die. Anybody seen anything that doesn't in their life? It's an amazing dance. And a wonderful one the law of impermanence. Another law you can see is that everything contains its opposite. That within birth is death. You get a ticket to go on the ride and they tear it in half like going in the movie theater, right? And this <laughs> half is birth. And the other half which you hold is death. Day and night is the same ticket. Sweet and sour. Pleasure and pain. You can't have one without the other. It's not possible. And yet we think and we idealize, I would like a life that's only light and only sweet and only birth and only the creative and none of the hard stuff. Anybody ever had a life like that? How about a sitting like that? (laughs) 
When I asked uh, in a class, I told that story of the uh, woman who had died, who had committed suicide, and her husband, um, struggling with all those different reports of where she'd been seen that I spoke of the other night. And then I asked in this particular class, what do you know that's really true? And someone said, well, I know that everything changes. And somebody else said, it seems that um, wherever or whatever opinion I have, there's another opinion. That wherever you look or from whatever perspective you have, there is some other possible point of view. That's another of the laws of the Dharma. Remember the story of Nasruddin and the fish? Mullah Nasruddin is traveling through India and he sees this great saint and yogi, a holy man, and he goes up and he pays his respects and says, myself, I too am a holy man, you know, kind of touting his credentials a little. And, this, and then he says, so what kind of a holy man are you to the man that he meets? And the yogi or the saint says, I'm a holy man who prays to the universal spirit of nature and I'm particularly fond of, in my practice, adoring and, and worshipping the, the, the beloved creatures of nature, the animals and all of the creation of life. And uh, Nasruddin says, well, I'm an adorer of life too. As a matter of fact, a fish once saved my life. And the saint says, wow, after all these years of practice and so much uh, that I've uh, prayed and, and done so much in order to, to um, connect with nature, even I have not had the honor of having my life saved by a brother fish. Won't you please stay with me for a while? You must be a really great saint and yogi yourself. So Nasruddin stays over a number of days and they meditate together and watch the birds and do all those things. And, the, and the, the yogi keeps saying, please, won't you tell me of your experience? Won't you please tell me? And Nasruddin says, well, I, I actually, I think as I get to know you better that you wouldn't be so interested in this particular experience. But finally he gets down as one does in India and puts his head on the feet of Nasruddin and grovels in the dirt and says, Oh, Master, I know it must be something truly important since you've saved it from me for so long. I will do anything to hear from someone such as you whose life was saved by, these, by, by a creature who had such intimate contact with nature. Finally, Nasruddin breaks down and says, Well, if you insist, yes, I was on the verge of starvation, and after I caught it, I felt well for a whole week afterward. <laughs> whatever point of view you have, whatever view of life, whatever opinion, there is another. What's another of the laws of the Dharma that you can discover? Impermanence? you can discover the selflessness that we've talked about, the unpossessibility of it, that there's nothing that you will find that can be grasped, and that in the grasping comes suffering. It's directly wired in, like the little dashboard lights, the idiot lights on your car. If you are suffering, all you have to do is follow the wire down and see, where am I attached? It's that simple and straightforward. If there's suffering, there's attachment. Inside the great mystery that is, says Rumi, we really don't own anything. 
What is this competition we feel then before we go one at a time through the same gate? We're all going the same place. What do we get attached to for? And maybe the last law that I'll speak of, because I wanted to make time for questions, is the power of loving-kindness. In this world of opposites, of light and dark, and sweet and sour, and expansion and contraction, it's amazing. The universe is rushing away from itself as far as it can, and all the things are spreading out. That's one force. And then the other force is what uh, Brian Swim, in his book, The Universe is a Green Dragon, named gravity. He called it allurement that in some way we are all part of the same oneness and, and the earth and the galaxies and people and everything are all attracted to one another. There is a power of the heart, just as there's a power of the mind to see with clarity and to understand the dharmas, the laws. There's a power of the heart as well, which is to love all that there is. And it's a kind of a mysterious thing. One can't say quite what it is. But there's no difficulty which it can't overcome. There's no pain which enough love cannot heal. There's no sorrow or no barrier which enough love cannot dissolve or break down. There's no problem which enough love cannot transcend or solve extraordinary power because it's based on the law or the fact of our interconnectedness that underlying all the senses of separateness and the sorrow that comes from that illusion is, an, is a fundamental connectedness. Between the conscious and the unconscious, the mind has put up a swing. All earth creatures, even the supernovas, sway between these two trees. And it never winds down, does it? Angels, animals, humans, insects by the billion, also the wheeling sun and the moon, ages go by and on it goes. Everything is swinging, heaven, earth, fire and water. It's fantastic. Take a look, won't you? Kabir saw that for just a few seconds, and it made him awake for life. Our task here is to listen to the Dharma, that is the teachings, to look at the Dharma as it arises, the different elements of our experience, to, to discover the Dharma as our place in it, our destiny, our, our path, our way, and to live that way through seeing the Dharma as the truth or the laws of nature, to live following the Dharma. And if one follows the Dharma, there is tremendous joy and incredible freedom and great insight that comes in simply following the Dharma. 
There's a poem by Wendell Berry that begins, The rain is free only in its falling. The cloud is free only in its drifting with the wind. If one loves the law, the Dharma, if one enters singing into the law, then one finds freedom. And so we sit and we listen to what is true and accept and open to that. Questions, please, on this or anything else that you'd like, or, or topics, or... Jack, as we talk about uh, sitting, we're usually we're always talking about what's going on right now. Um, and this confuses me a bit in terms of, of the dreams that I have, uh, which when I wake up in the morning have already occurred, and they're gone by. And I wonder whether there is or is not a place for dreams in uh, the Buddhist approach to things, and if so, what do you do? Good question. First of all, there's a place for memory, and when you wake up in the morning, even if the dream is gone, there's a remembrance of it, right? Mm -hmm. Just as when you sit here, you may remember something. It's simply to realize that that memory, too, takes place in the present. If you sit here and you have a memory and then you wish, I wish I could go back and fix it or change it or say this to that person or do that or whatever, you get all tangled up. But if you sit here and a memory arises, you can look at it and acknowledge that it's a memory. You might even learn from it, especially if it's one that comes again and again many times. There may be some lesson in it. But it's also an acknowledgement in the present that that's a memory and not some something that's happening in the present. Uh, so the first piece is to see that when you wake up and you remember the dreams that there's remembering and to honor that. Then the second place is that if anything comes back and it's repeated, whether it's a thought or a dream that seems to bring something of value, you can take a few moments to reflect on it or listen to what its message or its lesson is. Um, an interesting thing happens, particularly in long retreats like the three-month course, people will sit and not everyone, probably a, maybe 10-15% of the people who sit a long retreat, but it happens commonly, will start to experience, after many, many weeks of practice, uh, beginnings of lucid dreaming, where they'll have done so much paying attention in the day, sitting and walking and being mindful, that it's possible to lie down, and I experienced this a number of different times and periods in my practice, and be aware of yourself falling asleep and be aware of yourself starting to dream with as much attention as you are when you sit and start to follow your breath. In the Tibetan tradition, there's a practice called dream yoga. And at first it sounded very exciting that you would go and basically you learn to do this um, bringing of attention into your dreams until you have lucid dreaming. Um, and certainly you can work with your dreams or change them, but when I studied it a little bit in terms of reading about it anyway, and looked at dream yoga, and got to find what the heart of it is, it was both um, discouraging and uh, 
empowering at the same time. Because what I found that they were teaching in the final analysis was that when you could finally wake up in your dream, what you were supposed to do was basically to do vipassana in your dream. <laughs> that is in the Tibetan foundations of the six yogas. There's a, a transfer of consciousness yoga at the time of death. There's the bardo uh, yogas between one birth and another in their system. There's dream yoga. There's the yoga of uh, um, just sitting and meditating. In all of them, the bottom line is that you're supposed to see the arising and passing nature and recognize that it is nothing to be attached to. So that if you have that starting to happen for you and you practice wonderful, and if not, and you remember some particular dream and it seems to have some message, that's also useful. Well, I don't know what's been going on, but uh, since this retreat started, Mm -hmm. That happens to most people. Dreams become very vivid. They p become much more powerful. Often there'll be more nightmares with them. It's somehow, there are two things going on. One is that as you develop awareness through the day and you get more and more mindful, somehow that starts to carry over at night. And what was previously unconscious comes into your awareness more. Secondly, um, the daily meditation tends to serve some of the function of dream, which is to say the housekeeping function of um, releasing tensions and so forth. And therefore, when you do sleep at night, you often don't need to have the, the dreams that kind of let go of what happened in the day, and deeper things can arise. So it's quite natural. Enjoy them. The place of awakening is to accept and to transcend or to become aware of that which is greater than the duality of pleasure and pain and light and dark and birth and death. As long as you're in the duality, it seems like evil may be big or goodness is big or they seem like they're warring. And as Ajahn Chah used to put it, he said, why don't you step out of the battle for a while? And so what we do in a very immediate way in the sitting, but and to answer, because it's a deep question that you ask in an even greater way in the whole of our spiritual life, is to see the forces of greed and hatred and delusion. I'd rather call them that than evil, because evil somehow, to me, personifies it. And then there might be an evil person or an evil empire. And my, my sense of it, it's just 
it's darkness, it's delusion, and then there's understanding. But it's to see those and to step outside of doing battle with it and find a place of wisdom that's not in conflict. And out of that, the healing of that split can take place for the earth. I see the practice that we do as in no way moving away from darkness and fear or trying to create light to avoid that. In the interviews in this week as I've talked with people and listened, a lot of people in this room have confronted the same forces that make war or the deepest kinds of grief or rage or fear in themselves that you could see if you visited any terrible circumstance on the earth. And so what I see us doing in our practice is being willing to sit down and open to all of those and to discover a place of understanding and of love that incorporates or allows for both of them. Place of food.